Hey guys, this is Tho Bishop with Ready Rothbard, and I'm joined, per usual, with my co-host Ryan McMakin, and I'm going to take a big sip from my Radio Rothbard mug, which thank you for everyone. They are flying out of the bookstores right now, absolutely just unloading them in mass. So make sure you get yours before they run out. Um, but uh, what's going on in the news this week? We don't know. We're recording this in advance because uh, I have my first child on the way. And so I figured I was gonna take one thing off of our plight. Ryan generously agreed to help cooperate on that and the great family values of the Mises Institute. <laughs> and so we are going to, this is, this is gonna be a history episode. Nice, nice, uh, uh, immune to the uh, news cycle, I assume. You know, we'll, we'll see if there's some sort of great revelation made about early American Republican history. Um, you know, but one of the uh, many foundations, I think, of the Mises Institute mission is not only um, the promotion of Austrian economics and uh, you know the the, the philosophical found. Uh, views of, of Mises and Rothbard in terms of politics, but also the importance of historical revisionism, uh, because if you do not reset the narrative that the regime has, um, then there's all sorts of ways that people that have current political agendas, you know, that there's, there's always a sort of retrofitting, utilizing a historical narrative to fit whatever your current political ambition is. And so there is uh, you know, one of my favorite historians is, of course, Murray Rothbard. Um, and if you are interested in going deeper down this period of history, I would encourage you to check out the podcast series I did with Rothbardian Patrick Newman, um, Liberty Versus Power, uh, which is based off of his book of cronyism. But we're going to talk about a revisionist take and kind of pre-Civil War America, um, some of the myths some of the counter narratives out there, some of their continuing relevance in whatever might be shaping the news cycle when you listen to this next week. Um, because again, if you do not have that foundation there, if we are flying blind without the wisdom of the past, then it is very easy to make very, very big mistakes, which is why our ruling class that has no real sense of history is doing some of the things that we are doing. So Ryan, I know that you are something of a historian yourself. Your book, Breaking Away, has some very fascinating history. Um, and so, you know, just kind of starting off, uh, where do you think the, so, so I know one of the big themes that I appreciate within Rothbard's literature is that he has a very strong celebration of the American Revolution itself as a great moment of libertarian achievement in the grand scope of human history. This is something that there are other views out there. Um, Gary North uh, was a, a, a infamous um, revisionist on the American Revolution. This is something that has become more mainstream, even aspects of the American right, um, kind of being connected to uh, growing skepticism, pushback, say what you will, of classical liberalism itself as a project of the Enlightenment as a good thing for mankind. There's some, some nuance there that might be worthwhile. But what are your views on the American Revolution and do you uh, align with Rothbard's perspective of it being one of the great historical moments for the, the libertarian liberal cause? 
Yeah, I'm pro-revolution. I've never found the whole, oh, we'd be better off without the revolution thing to be particularly convincing. Um, I mean, what's the goal? To be more like Canada and Australia, those freedom-loving people? I mean, no thanks. And also, the... Of course, liberalism would have never have had the and and when I use the word liberalism, I mean laissez-faire liberalism. Uh, this isn't talk radio, so we're not using liberalism to mean the social democrats. If I mean social democrats, I'll say social democrats or progressives. So liberals, uh, it, liberalism would have never gotten the shot in the arm it got, and uh, had the U.S. Uh, the American Revolution not been successful, that had huge repercussions. Globally, it helped uh, the Poles in terms of expanding their own efforts at freedom with their uh, May uh, May 5th Constitution, I believe it was. Uh, unfortunately, that ended badly with uh, the, the partition among the Prussians and the Russians. But the Poles actually, uh, because of that, were able to really uh, expand and solidify their understanding of freedom, which has actually a pretty long uh, tradition uh, in Poland, also in Hungary. And that was all beefed up a bit by the liberal tradition gaining ground uh, throughout the West. And of course, the Canadians and the Australians and people throughout the British Empire also benefited from the success of the American Revolution because it made it, it, it provided an example that a liberal revolution could be successful and that the people who broke off could be successful as well because, of course, the United States throughout the 19th century became uh, very self-sufficient uh, and prosperous as well and eventually became, and by, you know, with a hundred years after the revolution was a major global power, even if it hadn't qu quite risen to the top yet uh, by the late 19th century. So uh, the if as long as you're going to have uh, wars, uh, <laughs> you you got to look at well, what were the outcomes here? And as far as wars go, the outcomes of the American Revolution were actually pretty good. The problem, the down, most of the downsides that result from the revolution, it was the counter-revolution that came from the adoption of the 1787 Constitution and with the victory of the Hamiltonians uh, and that whole side that wanted more centralized power in Washington had the Jeffersonian, George Mason, uh, I'm trying to think who else was major in this, the Samuel Adams side of things, the Patrick Henry side of things. If they had managed to win uh, alongside also a lot of the New York liberals, there, there, you would not have had the level of centralization. You would have had the Articles of Confederation. The perfectly good Constitution of 1776 would have continued on. Uh, the United States would have been this perfectly good union of independent states that were, of course, would have easily been able to defend themselves from any sort of foreign invasion. And you wouldn't have set up this huge centralized tax system and central judicial system that resulted uh, with the victory of the Federalists in the 1790s. So the, when, when a lot of these libertarians look at the downside of the revolution, what they're really pointing to is the victory of the Federalists that came afterward, that came in the 1790s. None of that was baked in with the revolution itself. Uh, and so we can't, I don't think we can ba uh, blame the revolution for any of that. And then I know some people have brought up, well, the Indians fared worse, that, that is the Aboriginal Americans, fared worse uh, once the Americans 
uh, managed to take over uh, rather than all the, the enlightened British state, which was uh, uh, more merciful toward uh, the, the native population. And I think if you look at the history of Australia and Canada, South Africa, uh, that's not a very convincing argument either when we look at how the British Empire has treated uh, its indigenous populations elsewhere. So I, I don't think there's many, you can claim much that the, the, the independent Americans were any, were any worse than the British were in terms of how the native populations fared. Uh, so it was really mostly a product of the success of the Americans who had just so many people who wanted to move to the U.S. after that, that these massive amounts of inflows of Germans and Irish and this huge growth in population that really doomed the indigenous populations in a big way. So I'm just not seeing what the upside was uh, to staying united to the British Empire and their mercantilist ways. Uh, so no, you, you'd have a hard time convincing me that the revolution wasn't a, a, a pretty good thing as far as ideological and political developments go. And of course, it's kind of the, the, the dynamic of that period is kind of just like a game of, of constant point counterpoint in terms of the, the motivating political strategies from the different factions. I mean, this is a point that Patrick Newman makes a lot. Um, and I, I think does a good job of illustrating that with in his book, Cronyism is that you know so you have the anti-federalists versus the federalists the anti-federalists lose that battle they respond to that by adopting a very strong constitutional perspective and trying to use the constitution now with the bill of rights added in as a renewed check on federal power um and this this leads to kind of the jeffersonian revolution in the 1800s so jefferson himself i mean arguably a a, a you know, president jefferson is very different than philosopher Jefferson um, and um, which which eventually you know you add in the war of 1812 you you, you have the merger of you know, the Virginia dynasty ends up becoming the the, the creation of a uniparty um, during the the poorly named era of good feelings which is a period of, of great corruption um, a growing civil service against a lot of the problems that we still see today and that is then checked eventually by the Jacksonian Revolution, which is inspired by, which is aided by changes within uh, an, an expansion of the franchise. Um, again, one of those interesting dynamics where democracy actually ends up being a check on um, the financial and power elite, because you you had people, you know, increasingly um, self-sufficient, a very very very, you know, a a, a, a enlightened population. Um, that were fed up with the corruption of the early republic. And I, I think that this, this deification of the Constitution is what fuels a lot of the trendy criticisms of the Enlightenment of, well, I mean, the, the Enlightenment is a little bit different there, but the, of, of liberalism, of constitutional liberalism. And I, I think that one of those dynamics is that if you uphold the Constitution itself as a standalone document, for one, we've seen obviously the perversions of the document itself with the changes of structurally, you know, the, the direct election of senators, which further centralize power and erode state uh, oversight on the federal regime. You see with the massive expansion of you know, kind of the replacement of a property rights 
regime, which is, again, I, I think the cornerstone of the liberal project following um, you know, the words of Mises. Um, you see it with the, the gradual authority that the Supreme Court provides itself, which starts very early on in those early days with John Marshall. Um, and you have within that a, a very, um, particularly in, within the modern era, um, not just a, a secular document, but a document that is often wielded against a lot of the uh, moral traditions that were baked into that early revolution itself as well. And so it's, it's, it's the, the boomer con conservatives that kind of elevated the Constitution as the foundational document of the United States, not, um, not the, the, the Declaration of Independence, not you know, again, this is something that would make the, the Glenn Beck crowd angry, but not the Bible, right? And the, the, the moral traditions of the West, as Ralph Rako noted, as, as the, the role that that played in the promotion of Western civilization and the benefits thereof. You know, it, it really is the, the boomer con conservatives that really embraced this secular decaying document um, that has, you know, not only been unable to maintain or, or, or support those anti-federalist traditions as desperate as they were to use it on the early days, um, but have directly led to a lot of the cultural, more systemic problems that the federal government and that politics alone will, will never be able to solve. Yeah, the, it's really just lazy, too. I mean, the, the amount of generalizing that people engage in in order to just appeal to authority or emotions and just say, oh, well, you should love the Constitution, so let's talk about how we're supporting the Constitution here. And, okay, which part of the Constitution? The part that allows the federal government to raise taxes? The part that centralizes federal power? The part that limits state power? Uh, I, I mean, it's the, the main part of the U.S. Constitution it, it centralizes power. It grows federal power far beyond what existed before. So if you're saying that the U.S. Constitution was this wonderful thing that they did in 1787, what you're saying is, oh, it was really good that they centralized federal power and expanded it greatly, because that's exactly what it did. The good part of the Constitution is the Bill of Rights which the Federalists didn't want. They said, oh, there's no danger of anybody interpreting this text in a way that would grow federal power. So we don't need a Bill of Rights. And thank goodness some of the liberals pushed that through, because otherwise it would just be a complete disaster. You can imagine how that would be interpreted, interpreted by courts today. Uh, without the Bill of Rights, they're protecting freedom of speech, uh, religion, limiting uh, the federal gov uh, government's ability to regulate firearms and all of that. Uh, what a disaster it would be without the Bill of Rights. And that was something the Federalists didn't want. Which also brings us to the other lazy thing that people do is they talk about the founding fathers as if they were some sort of unified group. If you ever want me to send you back an article almost immediately when you submit it for publication at Mises.org, send me something about how the founding fathers wanted XYZ. Okay, which founding fathers, which faction, which group? And so I know you're just winging it when you're just talking about the founding fathers in general. And that just totally creates this, this um, beige, boring version of history where everybody in the late 18th century agreed on everything. I mean, it's just complete nonsense. 
And, but that's, that's a lot of what these modern ideas of the Constitution and the, those guys in tri-corner hats is about. It, it just creates this blob. Oh, these were freedom-loving people, and they all agreed on everything. The reality is, is if the Federalists had been able to do what they wanted, most of our basic freedoms as Americans would have been eliminated many decades ago. It was the Federalists, of course, who wanted the Alien and Sedition Acts, destroying freedom of speech, uh, creating all sorts of xenophobic paranoia about people criticizing the government. Uh, that, was, that was the 1790s. That was what Americans thought was acceptable in about half of the country. Fortunately, they were soundly defeated by the Jeffersonians, uh, by the good founding fathers, uh, who opposed all that garbage. And so, yeah, let's stop with this, uh, with the bland narrative that uh, just homogenizes everything together. Because Rothbard had the proper view on this, right? There was clearly factions here, and you can get it in the uh, uh, volume four of Conceived in Liberty, and then, of course, the recently published volume five, edited by Patrick Newman, where... Rothbard just really goes at it in terms of looking at who are the good guys and the bad guys. First, a big factor of this is the fact that the Federalists basically use dirty tricks to get the Constitution ratified in the first place. The amount of lying that went into it, the amount of manipulation that went into it was really just astounding. Boy, you think elections are rigged now. Just read about what some of the Federalists were doing to get the old uh, Constitution passed. And so that really identified just how dishonest and how radical this counter-revolution was to rein in all of the local powers that were really weakening uh, the central federal government uh, and for the benefit, of course, uh, for Americans overall. Uh, so that's really what the narrative has to be, is that the revolution good in 1776, that was when the revolution took place. The counter-revolution came in the late 1780s. Uh, when they brought in the new constitution and then was made even worse in the 1790s as the Federalists uh, had uh, a decade to run rampant. Finally, some freedoms were regained in 1800, uh, the, the presidential election of 1800 with the victory of the Jeffersonians essentially destroying uh, the Federalists for a while. And then there was one party rule of sorts with factions within the parties. Uh, for the next 30 years. And I know, though, that you've done a lot of work with Patrick Newman on this. On That's when you really start to see a counter-revolution to the counter-revolution of certain sorts, where the Jeffersonians started to try and regain some of these powers then in the early 19th century. Well, yeah, and I, I think the, the reason why I find this period so fascinating, for one, one of the things, it's, it's very trendy in... Um, I think modern political circles, particularly with, within the, the right, vaguely defined, you know, it, it, there is a search, I think, that I think there's a recognition of how superficial a lot of contemporary political thought is. And so it leads one to try to discover, um, you know, older and often um, kind of foreign political thinkers. Um, you know, James Burnham, one, obviously, an, an American within that, but but that itself was kind of sparked a renewed interest in uh, Italian elite theory. Um, you know, you, you have a, a lot of kind of Catholic integralists looking for political solutions there. You, you have, there's, there's kind of the search outside of the United States for deeper political theories. Um, and I, I think, and I, I think that's a, 
it's a it's a grave um, mistake. Not that there's not value there, but again, as you were mentioning earlier about the diversity of thought within the founding fathers, there was an incredible amount of very rich intellectual traditions um, within the United States. I mean, these these were brilliant thinkers in their own right. And while you know, everyone knows Jefferson and and Madison, who Patrick argues was, was perhaps the, the the most Machiavellian. Of, of the founding generation. And, and while, you know, you know, obviously George Washington is not particularly well known for being an original thinker in his own right, there were, um, you know, there, there were strong disagreements, you know, amongst the anti-federalist tradition in terms of the proper way of, of handling uh, political power for that cause. Differences between um, Jefferson and Patrick Henry, for example, on the role of the executive and holding back uh, the excesses of uh, Congress that were arising. Uh, one of my favorite distinctions within that on the economic side of things is the Hamiltonian wing. If you, if you, if you read Hamilton's biographies, the individual that most influenced him um, as an economic thinker was um, Jean Baptiste Colbert of uh, you know, finance minister for Louis XIV, who was very famous because he was very useful to Louis XIV. Um, and 100 years later, you get an impoverished French crown leading to the French Revolution. And only in, in America, that only takes four years after George Washington to get their own revolution, um, though a far more peaceful one, thankfully. Um, in America, Jefferson's treasure, treasury secretary was Albert Gallatin, who was very influenced by the physiocrats, who is if you read Rothbard's works, that, 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 that is you know, who he kind of identifies as the European um, proto-Austrians along with the Salamanca school, um, you know, the people like Richard Cantillon, people like Turgot. The reason I, I bring that up is that that Gallatin economic tradition is, uh, uh, becomes a, a, a big part of the Jacksonian political tradition, which I find extremely fascinating in its own right, because you're dealing with, again, in one part, a uh, rise up against the uniparty, um, you know, which is headlined by, you know, the big Virginia dynasty and, you know, the, the names that everyone knows. Um, you have and you, you have the, the, the expansion of the franchise, which creates a very different dynamic in how do you motivate and, and, and create political change. And the Jacksonian tradition I find fascinating because some of those French, or some of those New York liberals um, that you mentioned earlier, Martin Van Buren um, being chief among them, they became brilliant tacticians in starting off with dealing with New York City politics. And of course you get uh, the Clinton family, which was a very prominent, um, you know, uh, 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 the, the leaders there uh, replaces uh, Aaron Burr, um, as, as vice president, you know, there, it's a very influential block um, within that Jeffersonian dynamic, helping broaden the map there for the cause. Um, Van Buren breaks his teeth within Tammany Hall politics. Um, and from there, he becomes a very skilled tactician in a political sense. But it's not simply the nuts and bolts political game, um, which they find as a banner um, Andrew Jackson, uh, who, you know, his dynamic, when, when you consider this democratic broadening, 
Um, how do you appeal to common folk? Well, you know, Andrew Jackson, who you know, originally runs in 1824 um, against uh, you know, you know, losing to John Quincy Adams and the corrupt bargain, the, the Jacksonians as a, as a movement um, pre-Jackson, uh, but, but that, that, that kind of intellectual foundation, a lot of them at the time were behind uh, a different candidate, William Crawford, who was the treasury secretary for Monroe, um, who, who was a Georgia politician who suffers a debilitating stroke. I mean, goes full John Fetterman. Um, they hide him um, from the electoral process. He still gets more votes than Henry Clay, which is a good thing. The only good thing Henry Clay did was get Aaron Burr off for treason charges. Um, and so they, they kind of realize they, they're going to break away from Crawford and they are able to utilize the rock star nature that, that, you know, that this is kind of a, a proto-Trump sort of narrative. I mean, you had, and after the War of 1812, you know, you have people, you know, the, 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 some of the, the most popular songs in America were, you know, Hunters of Kentucky and all these, these cultural dynamics elevating this figure of Andrew Jackson. Um, and, and then his, his, his es escapades um, didn't hurt with a large percentage of the population, though it did deeply offend uh, Thomas Jefferson, who thought he was a savage brute. And so the Jacksonians, in many ways, from having differences there, particularly uh, the, the use of the executive branch um, and realizing the executive branch has a big uh, uh, responsibility to be a negative force against Congress. And you think about the patronage that goes in the Congress, everyone wants their bite, everyone has their constituents that they want to get fat at the trough because that's how individual legislators get power. Jackson um, differed from Jefferson from a practical point of view where he wielded the sword of the presidency um, very strongly against the legislature. Uh, you know, he had more vetoes than all previous presidents combined as a way of uh, uh, you know, trying to, to get a, a firm hand on the finances of the nation. Um, you know, something that you read in your average textbook, right, is the evils of the spoil system where, you know, this, this, uh, this bloody hick, Andrew Jackson, that just wants to give all the commoners free cheese in a big party. Um, you know, he, he, he kicks out all these professional serious experts and he puts in the place a bunch of his cronies. Um, well, that was actually a good thing. You have a rotation of the professional class within that. Now, does that mean some of his friends made money off the public trough? Yes, but it broke up a lot of that institutional power that so often actually controls the dynamics of, you know, how government actually functions. And so that rotation of elites is actually a very, very good thing. Um, you have obviously on the economic front, um, you know, kind of echoing these, these proto-Austrian sentiments. You had an incredible wealth of intellectual knowledge amongst this coalition. You know, very rarely do we think about early American economic thinkers with, you know, Hamilton kind of gets uh, uh, elevated upwards again, benefiting from that Cal uh, Colbert dynamic of being a useful uh, tool for expanding power. Uh, but you had people like William Leggett, who was a, uh, a, a newspaper uh, writer, was, was, a, was, a, was an editor, was, you know, wrote a bunch of editorials. You know, there was an understanding that with this broadening of the franchise, that educating the voters on the views and platforms of this 
you know, of what Jackson was trying to do was important for electoral success. And so that led to a broadening, a, a broader distribution of the ideas underpinning this tradition. You also had William Gouge, uh, who was writing treatises on the consequences of paper money and the way that it enriched a financial class and, you know, the, the consequences there within. Um, and his work was so well-respected that it was even distributed overseas within Europe. And that kind of feeds into this, this broader dynamic that also happens with the classical liberals of England um, and, and the Anglosphere and the cross-pollination. Cross-pollination, if you are interested more in that topic, check out the transatlantic persuasion, which Ryan and I have talked about um, in the past. But so like these were serious thinkers with serious ideas that won elections by appealing to a newly, uh, to, to an angry and newly empowered electorate. And in doing so, um, you know, Patrick Newman would conclude that the Jacksonian revolution was far more successful in achieving the stated ends of that Jeffersonian anti-federalist tradition than what the Jeffersonians were to accomplish. And I think that there is something to be said there if you're trying to understand political theory, political science within the relative to America, you need, uh, you know, there, there, there's a dynamic there where I think there are traditions within a, a nation and a history that provide additional value along with the broader theoretical stuff. And so that Jacksonian tradition, which I which, you know, is something that I, I know Rothbard had a healthy respect for, this kind of plays into some of um, the old right stuff. Um, the, the tradition itself kind of goes into retreat. And, and really one of the, the tragedies of the Jacksonian movement is that for when you have massive regional disputes, so you get to kind of keep this coalition together for vulgar politics. Um, some of those tensions are over issues like slavery, where Van Buren and Jackson had um, differences but had a compromise there. But also it was the need to placate these that led to Jackson um, a, you know, a, a, a spending within internal improvements and things like that as a way of kind of passing again, that, that patronage dynamic. Um, you know, all of those end up creating the foundation that helps under undermine some of the victories made um, over a period of time. And of course, the Civil War, you, you, that, that, that is peak uh, 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 fractioning of that coalition and really sets the entire tradition back a great deal um, uh, after the Civil War. We have, you know, there's, there's no successes until after the Civil War for the most part. But, but that, it, it's, there's some, there's a, if you are someone who is interested in um, the political traditions that most correspond with the, Rothbard, the, the Rothbardian narrative of the promises of that American Revolution. I think the Jacksonians are just a wealth of information. And, and the Jacksonians, not simply Andrew Jackson, but the Jacksonians as a broader branch, there's, there's a lot of importance there. And I think that's one of the, the neat things. I know when I first discovered the Mises Institute, it was finding these rabbit holes of the physiocrats, you know, of you know, reading Rothbard's economic history and finding all of these different traditions that complemented each other and you know, created a foundation that has continuing modern relevance. And I think the Jacksonians are definitely one of those traditions to be considered amongst those.
Well, it's interesting, and it's probably not a coincidence that this is the period of American history that is least studied in your standard uh, public school history class, right? Uh, name uh, a bunch of historical events and important uh, political figures between James Madison as president and Abe Lincoln, right? How many Americans even know that the Mexican-American War was a thing? How many are familiar with the the important political debates of the period, of uh, the debate over the tariff, all of that stuff? There's basically nothing. There's no education about it whatsoever. I, one of the few places you can get, I suppose, um, a broad view is just Alexei de Tocqueville, right? With um, Democracy in America, he shows up in the eight, what the late twenties. And just talks generally as a sociologist about what the United States looks like. And it's you do get the impression from reading it just how basically invisible the federal government was uh, in uh, the first half of the 19th century. Really quite remarkable. And how the federal government had been really reined in since the 1790s and just made uh, really something in the background that had very, very little uh, power or um, dealings with regular people on a daily basis. You weren't getting hauled into federal court for stuff. The post office was there, but really there just wasn't federal regulation. There weren't federal agencies. None of this stuff was was going on. And so we just never talk about it. We never we, we never discuss it. Uh, and this was the liberal part of U.S. history, both North and South, right? This was a big thing in the Midwest uh, as well. And the New York and New Jersey liberals were extremely important. They try and sully this liberal period by connecting it to slavery somehow. But this actually ran contrary to slavery. Uh, and of course, uh, something like the Fugitive Slave Acts was a centralist issue that grew the power of the federal government, which liberals up north opposed heartily and with good reason. And then, of course, in after the war, the, you still have a laissez-faire party in America under Grover Cleveland and the people in that wing of the Democratic Party. And that's all now denounced as the Gilded Age, as being horribly corrupt. And so you don't get the Golden Age of America until what? FDR, Woodrow Wilson, which was finally the triumph of the high-tax, uh, pro-federal power uh, wing of the Democratic Party that finally takes over. They devalue the dollar. Monetary policy becomes a basket case after William Jennings Bryan. And so that's the period you're supposed to care about. You're supposed to ignore the 19th century when an excellent uh, groundwork was being laid for a more decentralized republic. And that actually did prevail for quite some time. And that was a point that Rothbard made is that, look, there actually was a laissez-faire party in America until the 1890s. And if we want an idea of what those issues are and how that would function, we can look back to that time period and see how those uh, groups of people, how those theorists dealt with things like monetary policy, with the banks. And that would just be considered terribly radical by today's standards. And, uh, you mentioned the transatlantic persuasion, right? You go in and you read 
some of the speeches by Cleveland and some of the post-war liberals in that period. And it's just astounding how much they denounce the bankers and the people who are seeking bailouts and subsidies and federal favors and how there was a an attempt to get back to uh, middle-class bourgeois economics that wasn't dependent on federal regulation and anti-competitive federal rules. And that is what the laissez-faire party wanted. It wasn't like these people who were just pro-big business and then claimed to be free market. The, the, the Democrats under in the Cleveland era really were that way, and they really saw the scam that was being pulled over on the American people by uh, the wealthy elites in the countries. And uh, they have some great rhetoric from that period that we could learn from a lot today. And I think if a lot of people read it now, they would think it was some sort of socialist commie thing, looking at how much it criticizes a lot of uh, these, these rich Americans who are exploiting the system. But there's nothing illiberal about that at all. That was really the heart of American liberalism, was preventing the federal government from handing out special favors to this ruling class and taking back power from those people. And a lot of that was lost then after the laissez fair uh, party essentially evaporated in the 20th century. No, absolutely. And I, I think that you, you, even the, the Jacksonian tradition, you had um, you know, a, a lot of the most articulate defenders of the, the Jacksonian war on the bank, um, you know, war ministers, um, you know, kind of decrying the way that the success, the, the, the resurrection of Hamiltonian policies, which, I mean, Al, Albert Gallatin, um, you know, as, as I, who I mentioned earlier, he, he plays a role in, in restoring um, the bank during the War of 1812. Um, and, 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 that, and, and of course, you know, there, there's something to be said about, I think it's important to have, a, you know, obviously you know, people that are attracted to the Institute, people were, were attracted to ideas, were attracted to theories. Um, you know, I think often it is easy to, to um, want to avoid um, elevating individual figures because individual figures have weaknesses as well. We are all fallen. Um, and so, for example, you, you have Gallatin's, you know, restoration of the Bank of the United States. You have um, Jackson, who was very bad on certain centralization issues. Um, you know, you have the, the nullify uh, movement in South Carolina that he wanted to, you know, go to war over. Um, you know, the censorship of anti-slavery, of, of abolitionist material um, in, in parts of the country. He, his, his own political philosophy is very um, interesting uh, because he, he was someone who really kind of viewed himself since he was the only figure of the federal government who was elected by the country as a whole. He, he, he believed in an in a extremely strong um, uh, uh, executive and and was one of the first ones of, of any real significance to question even the, the role of the electoral college. Um, you know, he, he thought that basically his his will you know should should triumph. We, we we're lucky that he was as 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 grounded as he was, surrounded by good people because like Jackson with 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 Hamiltonian ideas would would have been <laughs> probably far more worse for the country. Um, in, in in many ways, because at least Washington had a far, a, far, a, a a far more. Um, uh, a humility to him, and had to put Hamilton in his place a few bit, a few times. I don't, I don't think that a Hamilton-Jackson alliance would have been nearly as, uh, as restrained. Um, and so you know, there, there are these, these warts that you can find within these, these figures, but the way that the left 
has been able to, I think, conquer the political conversation, particularly amongst younger generations today, is the extent to which they have controlled that historical narrative. You talked about how, you know, America, you know, isn't the good guys, um, you know, after the Civil War until FDR or, or the progressive era of the early 20th century. I think increasingly that time period has moved even further since, you know, the, 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 the baptism um, from the modern liberal lens of the sinful American project isn't until the civil rights era um, where you, you, you finally have the state unleashed to do um, essentially whatever it wants to do in the name of the almighty God of equality, um, which has expanded over time the same way that financialization and that financial class um, you know, breeds the corruption by way of creating a, a, a ever-growing, ever-strengthening class of private interest economically um, that benefit from their connection to the financial class. Um, you know, the civil rights environment has created an ever-growing array of, of groups within the United States that benefits from privileges that the state brings upon them. I mean, I think it's telling, um, you know, not to go too far off topic, but you know, when you have the situation in New York with the uh, Marine uh, that choked up, the, uh, choked the, uh, the, the, the crazy homeless guy that was threatening people and said that he was ready to go to prison for life. And you know, his, his first public statements, right, are not, are, you know, are, are emphasizing just how not racist he is because that whole dynamic, right? He, he is being prosecuted first and foremost before the sin of racism. It's not for the death of an individual. And so there's, there's this, this understanding that, you know, if, if that is the crime, which is what the civil rights environment does, it, if, if they're, they're the, the law itself matters less and less. We've you know, had multiple episodes now on the weaponization of defamation law, the, weaponization, the, the way that the legal system has become completely distorted for political ends. This is one of the byproducts of that. And you know, that, that's that moment that progresses. So, so, so they have that narrative that, that America was a, a nation of, of, of evil slave owners that had lofty ideas but could not fulfill them. Slave, uh, the Civil War was the righteous conquering of the most evil of this fallen republic, and we should celebrate the burning down of their communities. Um, racism still exists because of the inherent white privilege, the white supremacy so baked in that the Civil War itself could not solve it. And so it's not until the very modern era where you have the state unleashed to do what is necessary. You know, they, they have their secular saints, they have their MLK, they have um, you know, these different figures that they elevate in order to combat that narrative, which, and, and, and again, I, I think that's, that's, that is the more modern narrative. I think you can look at, back at past narratives, our, our episode a couple of weeks ago about historical myths, right? It used to be the, the, the FDR as the great figure, as, as Lincoln as the great figure, because they were the great unifiers Right, that that's kind of like, I think a more progress, a more 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 traditional Democrat view. This is the more, more modern one. If we are going to have any success in the future, um, elevating our traditions, our ideas, it needs to be with its own cast of heroes, as flawed as they might be at times. 
um, and we have this grand arc. And I think Rothbard um, is so good because he has that narrative um, that, that and it's, it's incredible. I mean, considering how many different individual works that he has, you know, ranging from, you know, his, his uh, histories on the Federal Reserve and his, his small journal articles, you know, on the, the influence of the Fed on foreign policy, whether it is conceived in liberty, whether it is for a new liberty that is a contemporary take but, but has a celebration of the American Revolution. You know, there's all these different, the progressive era as another one itself. They're, these are all independent works in their own right written at different parts of Rothbard's life, and there are different coalitions that he has, different ways that he takes his underlying skill set, his framework, and applies it in different ways. And yet there is still this, this wonderful narrative that he has, and I think that is something that has made Rothbard's historical work resonate so strongly, and there are people that continue upon this. You, you get that same sort of feeling when you read a Tom Woods. You get that same sort of feeling when you read a Tom DeLorenzo. You obviously get that when you read a Patrick Newman, and you even hear it if you listen to him talk about it with that uh, fellow Yankee accent of his that him and Murray share. Um, but that's, that's something that I, I think is the most, if, if there's one thing that I think can really elevate our ideas into uh, more prominence. It is maintaining that Rothbardian historical narrative. Of course, I know you're a great fan of Ralph Rako, another important and, and fantastic historian within our tradition. And, and yeah, that's, that's why we, we are doing episodes on history, because in order to, to confront the political sins that we have today, history is a necessary lens and tool by which to, to engage those things. Well, and of course, promoting honest history is uh, right there in the Mises Institute uh, a mission statement and about page, because theory is by itself is insufficient, right? Obviously, you can only understand history properly if you understand good economic theory. But at the same time, people aren't going to be convinced just by logic and reason. Uh, they, they need to have a story that they buy into, and that's why most people agree with the left, is because they agree with the left's version of history. And so, boy, do you have to fight that. I mean, not until you start to make some headway in that are you going to be able to really change minds, because that is what convinces most people. Just look at how people feel about the Great Depression, about how they feel about industrialization, about how they feel about the history of poverty. They, they all buy into the left's narrative on that, and that's what forms their views on economics for the most part. So, yeah, clearly these views have to be addressed as well, informed by good theory as well. And that's, that's just the other side of the equation that you can never really ignore. And you know what pairs great with a good history book? A Radio Rothbard mug. You can get yours at Mises.org slash Rothmug, R-O-T-H-M-U-G. Um, you know, I, I think that's a good historical rant at that point. You know, hopefully the world hasn't, isn't burning down um, you know, at the time that this airs. But uh, Ryan, uh, this, this has been a fun conversation. I'm sure we'll be doing some, some other versions of this again. I'm going to have to find some new material. Um, but for Ryan McNakin, this is Thoe Bishop. This has been Radio Rothbard. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time. 